Hello, welcome to Project 99, the podcast that is covering everything um, news, politics, all things of sorts that pertain to the 99% of us. Um, We have two hosts on our show. I'm one of them, and I go by Juke, and also here with me I have Mick. Hello. So uh, we're going to bring you guys different topics every week. Lots of different things. We talk about history. We talk about politics. Conspiracy. Uh, conspiracy theories. Um, we but they're have, not really theories. They're actually just history. <laughs> we have all kinds of things to bring you guys. You never know what we're going to pull out. Um, going to try to bring a good uh, show to you every week. So uh, let's just jump right in. Let's see what topics Mick has for us this week. Okay. So since our first episode, basically just going to let you guys know that the reason we decided to do this podcast is because there's a lot of pissed off progressives out there. Um, but being angry, everybody understands we're angry, but we have to have more than that. And, uh, you know, there's always been more of us than there are them when we talk about the 1%, but the way that they manage to keep us oppressed, uh, they have an entire infrastructure that they've built, uh, to keep us that way. And the only way that we're ever going to have a revolution that's going to be successful is if we dismantle that infrastructure. So... One of the things we have running against us is that the 1% have all the time and money in the world to develop their agenda because, you know, they don't have to work a day-to-day job. They don't have to take their car in to get it inspected. They don't have to go grocery shopping. Like, all the elites of the world don't have to do any of these mundane tasks that we are burdened with every day. And, you know, it's our lives. We love our lives. But the bottom line is they have all the time to create and enact their agenda, agenda, plus they have resources to do it. And all we have really is each other, um, which is not to say that that's not a powerful force, but we have to be a lot more coordinated, work together. and Basically, the only thing we have that they don't have is numbers. There are just more of us. Other than that, they have us on every other level. They have more time, more money, more resources, more power. They, they have everything. The only thing we have is numbers and people. So one of the biggest things in this show that I'm hoping to accomplish is to kind of close the divide between people because, um, you know, I live in a red state and I am not a conservative or Republican, but I don't uh, consider myself a liberal or necessarily a Democrat either. Um, And I think that I'm an open-minded person that can come to a lot of different agreements and levels with people, which is, I think, what we need more in our government. Um, So I hope with this show that when people listen to it, that they don't hear something that they might not necessarily agree with and automatically tune out and turn off. Because the whole point of this is that we want feedback from you guys on what you think. And we want to tell you with the facts that we have, you know, what we think. And... I mean, the the whole point of this is, you know, to inform people, to educate people, and to start a conversation. Because as long as we are all divided, there's no conversation, and and they win. That's a win for them. Exactly. And nobody wants that. So just keep in mind when you're listening to this that you might not always agree, but that shutting someone off is the end of the conversation. Right. And cognitive dissonance is a good thing. Because when you experience a moment where you'll be listening to the show and you'll be like, oh, I really agree with that. And then they'll say something and you're like, whoa, like I didn't expect them to, to come at us from that angle. 
because like Duke said, we have pretty disparate opinions on things sometimes. Like we don't fit into any camp. And I think a lot of people are in that, in that uh, station where they're like, well, I agree with, you know, this side on these things, but not with this side. And then, but, but their goal is to divide us. And so all of this divisive politics is it's a strategy that they're employing against us. So as she said, we need to keep the dialogue going. Um, and so the, the tools that I've identified that the 1% use against us to keep us divided um, is uh, they use propaganda, which the mainstream media is all bought and paid for by the government. Um, they won't run anything that's, uh, just today a story came out about a major network that squashed the Epstein story. And, um, you know, it was caught on a hot mic. Uh, apparently the reporter, you know, was frustrated because she had all this information and she wanted to run with it and she was told no. And, you know, so she was kind of venting about that situation. And so what we need are people like us who don't have a financial interest in telling the, tr the truth. We're just out here to tell the truth. We all have to be citizen journalists um, because, they're, because the top down, the 1% has been feeding us BS disinformation from the very moment we were born and um they they use that disinformation to basically brainwash us into being compliant with what they're what they're where they want to move us around and to. when we say that brainwash you um we're not talking about any specific side and that's the thing that you need to know when you listen to this podcast is that neither one of us mick or i believe that one side is the enemy because they definitely both have their flaws and a lot of the same problems uh, they share. Um, so don't ever think that when we say, oh, you're brainwashed, that we are speaking about specifically one party or the other. Or, you know, or, or liberals, either one. Exactly. I mean, the goal of the 1% is to disenfranchise us. And we've seen, you know, Democrats and Republicans gerrymander. We've seen Democrats and Republicans involved in all kinds of financial scandals. So basically our tack is that we're anti-corruption either side and um you know the way that elites basically democracy and elitism you know egalitarianism and elitism are incongruent it can't exist together you can't have an elite class and a and a, and a, and a surf class basically and yet say that everybody has we're de democracy we all have the same voice because the wealthy always leverage their wealth and their power to give themselves more rights than what we have. And we see this every single day. Right, we see it every day and not just on a high scale level. We see this on levels as far as up as the White House and we see it on local levels exactly. as well. I mean, just in our city, we're seeing a local news story about a city official who uh, committed a crime It is basically um, getting what the public is calling a lesser punishment than what a regular citizen would get and personally I do not practice law and they don't know you know what I mean I feel like in every situation it's a case-by-case -case basis um, on how severe it was and this or that but it's not hard for me to see where the public is coming from and it's not hard for me to believe that he got a lesser sentence than what someone would get but I haven't done the in-depth research to see okay well you know how many people did this exact same situation and were charged differently I haven't done that research, so I can't comment, but we do see that. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, everyone on whatever side they're on, mm -hmm. see the corruption at every right. level. And the, and the problem with what you said about doing the research to try and, 
you know, kind of justify, well, this person in this position was treated differently and we want to prove that, okay? The problem with us doing that as citizens is that so much information is withheld from us. Our government is so secretive. We can't get information about anything. If you try to call a place and get information, it's it's so hard. I mean, you're 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 blocked at every turn. And it's almost like we're going to create what we want you to think the story is and we're going to give it to you and you're just supposed to eat that off a spoon and you're not supposed to question it and you know as we get into some different issues here and different different uh episodes of our show you know we're one of the things we want to do is kind of deprogram and detoxify people's brains of the lies that they've been constantly told by everybody that's part of the the infrastructure the disinformation infrastructure and so we kind of joked about conspiracies earlier. Um, you know, Juke and I are both big fans of the X-Files. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that both of us have been called conspiracy theorists more times than we can count. But I always tell people a conspiracy theorist theory is really just um, history that hasn't had 40 years to mature. <laughs> because so much of what we're told we're crazy about, given enough time, becomes true. I would say that I agree with that to a certain extent. But I have, unfortunately, uh, gone into certain parts of the internet and I see some of the craziest, like, 4chan conspiracy theories and I'm like, okay, these people are definitely, like, wackadoo. Right. Like, like, I'm not saying, like, to the extreme. But let's just say, like, for like example... Like the 9-11 conspiracy. You know, if... I, I don't want to quote it because I don't have a pulled up in front of me and I don't want to be incorrect about it. Which, by the way, if we ever happen to, for any reason, misquote or get something wrong let us know yeah, because absolutely. we have no shame in admitting that we're wrong exactly. there is a lot of information and we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff so if we ever slip up on something just let us know no hard feelings in admitting we're wrong but um i'm pretty sure i read somewhere that they surveyed people basically that more people are convinced now that 9-11 was an inside job oh, absolutely than previously oh, absolutely. before so and there's all kind of data you can find about that that's been done by, um, you know, various research organizations. Um, asking people, for example, right after 9-11, how many of them thought that um, we invaded Iraq uh, because Iraq attacked us on 9-11. And so many people believed that. And then as time went on and people became a little bit more educated about, like, well, you know, and I remember when Juke and her brother were in high school, and they said, you know. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I mentioned that or not, but uh, Mick is my mother. So <laughs> there's that information. Yeah. So when, when, when they were like, well, we had to invade Iraq because, um, you know, 9-11. And I was like, well, okay, but Iraq didn't attack us on 9-11. They were like, what? And, and this, is, this is terrible, too, that, you know, they were in high school and they've not been properly informed about historical events that affected their lives directly. Um, because honestly, like they could be at, at an age where they're about to join the military and they, they honestly legitimately believed that, um, you know, Iraq had attacked us on 9-11 and, and apparently so did a lot of people. So um, I think that the media tells you certain things over and over again and they leave out certain things so that people naturally draw these conclusions. And it's not that people are stupid. It's just that we are being led to a certain, you know, in a certain direction. So, um, again, like with the conspiracy theories, the term conspiracy theory actually was uh, started by the CIA <laughs> um, in reference to the um, JFK 
assassination. And I'm looking at the document right now um, where they basically uh, said uh, to provide material for countering and discrediting the claims of conspiracy theorists so as to inhibit the circulation of such claims in other countries. Like they basically are saying, like, let's just label anybody who disagrees with the Warren Commission as a nut and, and you know, just discredit them like they've seen Bigfoot or something. Um, and so the CIA, that's, that's their goal is to they do these corrupt things and then they create a story and they force it on you well you know here i know this is kind of unrelated but my brain is like a spider web and you say one thing and it shoots me over to like 10 different things and i just today i was reading about um i don't know if you guys have ever heard of uh the willowbrook institute or uh it was an insane asylum willowbrook was an insane asylum okay um in i think the 70s uh, but it was busted out by an independent uh, journalist. Actually, no. No, no, no. He was a journalist for... Uh, I can't remember. He, he did the 2020. He was like one of the first guys to do 2020. It was Geraldo Rivera. Okay. You know him? Yes. And uh, he he did the documentary about Willowbrook, the insane asylum, and like went in there with cameras and like exposed all the horrible stuff that was going on there. And... Um, it just reminds me of that situation because how many people were like in total denial that they treated people that way. Mm-hmm. And so he just like showed up there with cameras mm-hmm. and just exposed it all. And people were horrified. I mean, they, I think the important message I took away from watching uh, the documentary about Willowbrook and how Geraldo Rivera exposed them, um, besides the fact that he has a really funny mustache, um, <laughs> was that... You know, a society, the society as a whole, it was so horrible what was going on that it was just easier for them to believe that it wasn't happening. Right. And until he took cameras in there unexpectedly and just absolutely exposed the horrors that they were putting amongst those people, nobody believed it. And then immediately they took action afterwards. So it's like, I feel like there's two important takeaways from that, which is first of all, you know, we're not paid to do this. This is this is a extracurricular activity, if you will, um, because we believe it is so important to go out there and get the information. Um, and secondly, I know a lot of people sometimes they, they hear things that they don't want to believe because it's awful, whether it's because they don't agree with it mm-hmm. or because the idea that they had previously is, is not... Um, congruent with what mm-hmm. they're hearing now mm-hmm. but I just seriously urge everyone who listens to this um, even if we're talking about a crazy conspiracy theory that just because it may not sound um, what you're used to hearing to please please do your own independent research ask questions you know don't I'm not even telling you to take our word for it please don't ever just take someone's word right, for exactly. it exactly do your own research. And I know it's hard to find time being a part of the 99% of poor people uh, or middle-class people, whatever you are. I'm a poor person. So um, I work and I go to school and that's like all my time, but you have to make time for these things. It is, it is extremely important. I would say that if you're religious, it's as important as going to church to be informed Mm -hmm. about these things. So don't just take our word for it, but bear with us with some of the conspiracy theories get the idea in your mind and do your own research or you know what I mean? That's, right. that's the thing I want to spread the most is that 
it is so important to formulate your own ideas. Don't just watch the news. I'm guilty of watching the news, but every time I watch the news, I'm immediately pissed off. Every morning when I wake up, I like fall asleep watching the ID channel about like murders and stuff. That's like my guilty pleasure is watching the ID channel. But I fall asleep watching that and I wake up and uh, there's like the morning express with like Robin something. Robin Robin Mead, yes. She's so happy. It's always on, right? But do you know how many times I've watched that show and heard her say things and then Googled it and found out that she's just completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Like literally what she said is completely 100% not true. (laughs) And I'm like... Wow, I almost quoted what I heard on the news to someone. To, I heard this on the news this morning, and I almost quoted it to someone. Mm-hmm. And I would have sounded like an idiot because she just lied straight up. Like, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know where she just, it was wrong. Mm-hmm. What she said was completely wrong. So, right, and a lot of times it's not even just that they're factually inaccurate. I mean, it is sometimes, but it's the way that they tell a story. Like, CBS This Morning did a segment on... Um, the cost of medical care like and I'm like oh my god like an actual mainstream news is going to talk about like how ridiculous the cost of medical care is so and I don't really watch the news but sometimes it's still on after you know my boyfriend leaves to work and it's just on there and it comes on so CBS this morning is what you would normally hear me talking about so they have a segment and this is the medical issue they covered this guy goes out and gets hammered at his bachelor party and the next day, he's so sick that his fiance lovingly tells him, you know, don't worry about the rehearsal, honey. Go to the hospital because you're so sick. And so he goes to the hospital, and they hook him up to an IV bag to rehydrate him, right? Which is crazy. And let me tell you all now that also suffer with paying for health care, that a lot of places, even my, you know, nobody town has this place called an IV bar where you can go and pay like 40 bucks for this bag of like fluids. And even if you don't, you can go to like MedExpress and get a bag of fluids, dude. Do not waste the money. Do not go to the ER. Right. So he goes to the ER and and his bill is $12,500. Which is ridiculous, but still that wasn't an emergency. Right. And so, but the whole point of the story is that CBS this morning, rather than pick somebody who has a legitimate illness, who has to pay an astronomical amount of money for, say, you know, an EpiPen or insulin or something like that, they pick a story where the person who is, quote, sick is sick because it's their fault. Right. And I think that that puts in the person's mind, like, well, everybody watching this now is going to be like, well, that guy's an ass. Like, it's his fault. It's his own fault, right? It's his own fault. So they completely discredit the problem as a whole. And you're blaming the victim. Right. You know, so, and then the lady that comes on to talk about it is from Kaiser Health, and she's saying, you know, well, you can avoid these high emergency room costs by going to an urgent care, and, you know, yeah, but sometimes they're not open, and, you know, they go into that whole nonsense, but, like, the whole takeaway that I got from it was, like, you basically told a news story that was a non-story to blame the person for their own high health costs, which is stupid, but that's the kind of stuff news does to, like, derail you and distract you from, like, but here's what I always say about propaganda. There's a point at which the propaganda runs into your real experience as a human being. And I think with Medicare for all, what we're getting to is the point where, you know, people have been told the BS um, that the people that don't have health insurance or can't afford health care are poor, they're lazy, they're, they don't want to work, they're welfare recipients, they're this, they're that. Like, they've been demonized, the people that don't have medical coverage. And at the last job that I had, which I had, where I had medical coverage, which I have none right now, 
But the last job that I had where I had medical coverage, the cost was to me was $850 a month for my premium. And the uh, business I worked for also paid $10,000 a year towards my premium. So, you know, when you think about that, and then the fact that each member of the family had a $2,000 per person deductible, and then it only covered 80-20. So when you look at the astronomical amount that even when you have insurance, and this is what Bernie Sanders is trying to get across to people, is that it's not just people that have no insurance. It's people that are paying ridiculous money for insurance who can't afford to use it. Right. And the perfect example I could thought of, I think of, um, was, I don't even remember how old I was, um, under 20. And I was a manager at some store. And um, I was working because I had no other choice. I was the only manager there. And I'm waiting for a phone call from my mom to let me know how my brother's surgery went because he was in a car accident. And the only thing I'm thinking other than like, oh my God, I hope he's okay, is this is going to ruin his life because how is he ever going to pay off the massive amount of surgeries he's having right now? And then eventually when he did recover, thank God, um, he did have a lot of medical bills because it's like even if you have $100,000 worth of surgery, there's a cap. 80, 20, mm-hmm. you're right. still end up paying $20,000 right. and how he doesn't have that. Right. You know, so it's like here she is paying all this money um, for us to have insurance and her company is dumping all this money so that we can have insurance. And yet still one medical emergency happens. Exactly. And he's done. Yeah. He's done. And, you know, that comes from a failing of a, a lot of different places. But I just, it, it always shocked me because it's like, at the time I was probably only 19 or 20 years old. And it, it disturbed me that the, I mean, obviously the first thought I had was, you know, dear God, please let my brother live. But the second thought was, Please don't let this ruin his life because he'll be in debt forever. Right. And, you know, like most people, uh, the medical bills just go unpaid because no one just has, you know, 20 grand laying around. I mean, that's just an estimate for me, 100 grand for his surgeries because he had several surgeries to fix the damage from the accident. Um, Which, and yeah, he had insurance. He had excellent insurance. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter because even though 80-20 sounds good when you're talking about that high of amounts, right? $100,000, still leaves you with 20 grand and who has that? Right. Even if he paid on it, that's going to stop him from making, you know, that that could be the difference between him being able to pay rent or being able to buy a house and pay a mortgage. I mean, and I think that's the thing that people miss. Um that program may work for a lot of people. Um paying those astronomical amounts and their 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 family their employers playing that amount and barring any kind of major surgeries or accidents maybe it seems like it's okay but it isn't until it happens to you exactly and i think that you start to realize that like oh my god even even 80 20 that sounds good but now this person's life is ruined because they've got 20 grand in medical debt and they might have to stave off buying a house for 10 years because they have to make payments on this and another thing too is that um you know the the for-profit industry has put out so much propaganda about medicare for all um the lies that they put out about it and um you know one of the things they'll tell you is that you know socialized medicine which we're not talking about socialized medicine they throw a lot of a lot of inaccurate terms around but what we're talking about is government-funded health care 
um, which is different than social. In socialized medicine, the doctors are actually employed by the government. So the government does have, would have ostensibly some control over your, the care that you receive because the doctors, like teachers and police, would work for the government. What we're talking about is single payer here, where the government would pay the bill, but the doctors are still private entities. Okay, and it, but, they, but they put out this fear there that, you know, if the government's in control of your uh, health care, they'll start having these death panels. And you hear about these death panels about how they'll decide that, you know, you're old and your care is costing too much, so they're just going to let you die. And um, I had to recently go to a uh, health care meeting at my work, which I wasn't eligible for the health care there because I'm not full-time. But I had to go to this mandatory meeting. And so the, the uh, gentleman that was there uh, representing the health insurance company was talking about this great, the great care, you know, the insurance company. It's basic health care BS. And so um, I got kind of irritated. And I Googled on my phone because a friend of mine had died from cancer. Um, and she had insurance, but they didn't cover her cancer treatment. So I happened to Google um you know, Aetna and denial of care, and within five minutes came up with a story of a woman uh, who died because uh, the because Aetna refused to cover her uh, cancer treatment. And what and site? What site are you looking at for this? I am looking at CNBC. Um, this is just one of the places where the article was aired. Uh, jury tells Aetna to pay twenty-five million to late cancer patient's family. Um, she died a year after the insurance company refused to cover a type of radiation therapy. So her doctor said, this is the kind of radiation therapy she needs. But the insurance company said, no, we don't, our doctors say she doesn't need that. So they got into this, you know, back and forth about Aetna covering the cost of this care and she died. So you want to talk about death panels. Um, it exists in private health care that sometimes you're denied the treatment that you need uh, because the insurance company just says you don't need it. Right, and another example of that is I have a friend who has uh, a disease that requires a certain kind of medication. It's Crohn's disease. It requires a certain kind of medication to keep the Crohn's in remission. And the insurance company does not cover it. And they've tried several different marketplace plans because their work doesn't offer insurance because it's a small business. Uh, they've tried to buy on their own several plans, regardless of the cost, how expensive it is. They've tried to buy a plan. None of the plans cover this drug that they need to fight their Crohn's disease and keep it in revision. It's like, so what does, what does a person do in that situation when they have a job that keeps them, you know, middle class level? Um, but they can't afford in a middle class level to buy the drug without insurance but no marketplace plan will cover them. Right. I mean, what do you do? I mean, and, and you think that's a rare occurrence, but more and more I run into people who have this problem. Right. That they can't get plans because they have pre-existing conditions or the drugs that they need are not covered by these plans. And even if they can afford to buy the plans and pay the premiums, you know, they can't even find a plan that covers what they need because right. they just, it's too expensive. And, and my friend who died, she died of lung cancer. And, um, you know, she, like I said, she had insurance, but she went to her doctor and her doctor said, well, we have this medication that can treat you, but um, your insurance doesn't cover it. And it's $20,000 for a month of treatment. And I thought, does she have this price? Is, is this price? I guess she's got to have this wrong, like what he's telling her. So I looked it up and, um, you know, Cancer treatment for one patient for one year is, is, could be $100,000. Yeah. 
So if your insurance company doesn't cover it, you're basically told to go off and die with your cancer, which is what she did. And so, you know, I have a real personal, um, you know, feeling about all of this in that, um, you know, when, you, when you're talking about for-profit medicine, like where, and I think a lot of people um, who have the belief, they believe the propaganda that's put out there by the media, um, until it hits them at home, until they really, like I said, their reality comes into direct conflict with, with, with the lies they've been told. They just keep believing the lie. Right, exactly. And and that's the thing, too, is that I feel like a big problem is that people don't get involved until it affects them, which I feel like is a natural thing because, like I said, I, I, mean, I didn't start getting involved in politics or any kind of opinions about politics or getting educated about healthcare or anything until I was an adult. You know, as a teenager, I, there was nothing stopping me from learning about these things, but I didn't care. And then I became an adult and I was like, wow, these things affect me and mm. the people around me. So I started doing a lot of research and even now I'm in college and um, in my macroeconomics class, we're reading about different things that affect the economy. And a couple of weeks ago, we, we were reading about healthcare. So I came to Mick and I'm like, listen, I don't understand what the deal is here. If there's a profit to be made being an insurance company, a profit. I mean, besides paying the people who they employ to keep the, the system running, if there's a profit to be paid, I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Healthcare is a, is a necessity. So why wouldn't the government run it at the bare minimum cost with no profit, pay their people, you know, and provide the healthcare and pay out for things like that? I mean, I think about it in the situations like, why isn't the healthcare company co you know, covering cancer costs? Clearly they have the money because they're making a profit, so their money is there. Um, and I won't claim to have a super knowledge of healthcare. Clearly I'm still in college and I'm still learning about a lot of things, but it just seems like if there is a profit margin to be made, people will become greedy and I don't understand why there isn't a cap for what they have to pay out. And if there is, like, it, it should be like 90 10. This right. should not be a for profit right. industry. This is people's lives we're talking about here. And that's the problem, too, with, you know, unrestrained capitalism because, you know, obviously people, when they, when they talk to me for a while, they read my articles on Op Ed News, which I'll give a shout out to Op Ed News. It's a great website. A lot of people write on, on the website about progressive uh, ideas. But, um, they'll, you know, they're like, wow, like, are you like a socialist? <laughs> and I feel like, you know, the terms that get defined, how they get defined, how they get moved around, um, is kind of, it's, it's really hard to make communication if you're using terms at all. But um, I think that capitalism, you know, no, no one person can make it all the goods that they need in their life, usually. So we trade things, you know, commerce developed among humans. But I think that capitalism has become so unrestrained because of the way that the way it evolved. And now that it's a speeding train, you know, anyone who tries to get in there and put some like restraints on capitalism is just run over by the train. And so, you know, I am I am I would say it's fair to say I'm anti-capitalist. Um, but but I say that and like this is what I used to tell my dad, who's hardcore conservative, is that socialism was born 
out of the abuses of capitalism. Socialism and communism were critiques of capitalism. In the industrial age when capitalism was, you know, when, uh, you know, people were moving to cities and working in factories and, you know, when you study the history of that, like, it came out as a critique of capitalism. So if capitalism was a great fair system and everybody could have the American dream and work their way up and all the, you know, if it was what it pretends pretends to be, Socialism and communism wouldn't have even been born. Well, and I know that the argument against that is that, well, some people are just lazy and they won't want, of course, you know, they won't want people who are willing to work for have. But it, you talk to people, and I guess my view on this too is that people call me a socialist all the time. But my view is not that everybody should just get things for free. That's not my view at all. I do believe that people who work hard and the harder they work, they should be rewarded for their hard work. But I've just watched too many people in the red state that I live in on the East Coast. Uh, I've watched far too many people devote their lives to companies, mm-hmm. working as hard as they could possibly work, being as reliable as anyone could ever ask you to be, devoting their life and still never making it out of poverty or barely middle class right so obviously work ethic is not what has to do with it and you know being in a red state where there is a lot of blue collar work we always tell people well go to college if you want a better job but the reality is there's a lot of jobs that need done (laughs) regardless of whether or not they require a college degree Mm -hmm. those people should be able to make a living wage right and I don't, I don't understand why that's an argument among party lines mm-hmm. because, I mean, like I said, we live in a small town and lots of people here are Republicans, but when I talk to people on a level where they don't immediately, like on the internet, where they just immediately judge you as being a liberal snowflake or something, when you talk to people, they basically have the same views. They don't want their daughter or their cousin or their aunt or their sister or whatever struggling when they know how hard she or he works so it's like they have the ideas that are there but they just don't realize that it's all a part of the same problem um i mean and it's not that i think that you know i know one of bernie's things was like a 15 i think 15 dollar an hour minimum wage and i don't necessarily know that that's the answer because 15 dollars in new york is definitely different than 15 Mm dollars in west virginia where we are Mm -hmm. um But I just think, what is wrong with our country and the corporations that are here that we have to set these limits? I mean, there's just no morality anymore to pay people for a hard day's work. Right. So the idea that people who are suffering are all in the category of just being lazy is just not logical to me because we know that corporations do not want to pay what people are worth. Right. Right. So... And especially when you look at West Virginia, because as you mentioned, there's a lot of coal miners here. We had the steel industry here, and now we've got the gas industry here. Um, so those are those are extra- extraction industries. And um, every time that an extra- extraction industry came into West Virginia, what the people here heard was, "Oh, this is going to be a boom for West Virginia. You know, West Virginia is this is going to be it. This is going to the roads are going to be paved." Well, and you know what I have to say about that is a lot of work did come in from here, 
but a lot of people were out of town. So the biggest change I think we saw was a massive amount of hotels sure. building here sure. and things like that. But what people don't realize is, you know, with those workers coming here and a massive amount of them being here, there are hotels being built and that's great. Mm -hmm. And places like Walmart and local grocery stores are making money off of those people who are staying here. But yet the person working, you know, the housekeeping at the hotel room whose work has now doubled is still making nothing. And it's like, right. listen, you need that person there cleaning your rooms to be able to continue this functioning cycle. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, and then people bring up the argument, well, I don't think somebody cleaning rooms at a hotel should make the same amount of money as a paramedic. Well, it's not a, you know, it's not a, or. We're saying at the bottom. Yeah, We're saying at the bottom but it's, level. It's not an if and or or question. Right. You know, it paramedics should make more as well. Right. It disgusts me that if minimum wage in West Virginia is eight twenty five or eight seventy five, that they're only making nine dollars an hour. That it, that's disgusting. Well, in a lot of places, they're the uh, you know EMTs and paramedics are are being paid zero because they're volunteers. That's disgusting too. Seventy seven percent, seventy seven percent in West Virginia of firefighters and EMTs are volunteers so when you call 911 a lot of people think the first time they call 911 right they call 911 and an ambulance is sitting somewhere probably at a hospital who comes to get you and that's really not what happens I mean there are especially in rural areas there are in cities there are paid there are some paid departments like Wheeling has a paid department um, and there and there's tri-state which is a private organization but out in the rural areas you know, you have just volunteers who are literally getting out of bed in the middle of the night. Um, when they have other jobs. When they have other jobs and going and getting in an ambulance or a fire truck and coming to your life emergency for nothing. And, you know, I, and the, the fact that I'm not trying to diss the police because the police, you know, should be paid for what they do. But we've always had paid police. But the fact that you know, we you don't we, have volunteer police. We don't have volunteer police. I mean, there are citizens that go out and help with ticketing and things like that. But I'm saying like, when you compare the probability of needing the police as an average citizen living in the country as, as compared to needing an ambulance or a fire truck at some point, I just think like it's crazy that we, we think it's an absolute necessity to have police to control the people. But we don't consider it an absolute necessity to provide an ambulance and a fire truck for the people. So that's that's a whole nother situation. But back to West Virginia being an extraction industry state. So, you know, we keep hearing that, you know, oh, we're told by the politicians that this industry is going to generate so much wealth for the state. And the state is going to be out of debt. We're going to have surplus. Our roads are going to be paved. Our bridges are going to be you know, pristine. I mean, they, they say this and, and same thing with gambling. When they, when they pass the laws to have casinos in West Virginia, they said, oh, this is going to be the boom. This is going to be the thing. We're going to fund our schools. We're going to do all this. And West Virginia keeps getting poorer. Now there's people getting rich, but the average West Virginia, West Virginian is still poor. The schools are still closing. The highways are in horrible condition. And so there's a thing in economics called a resource curse. And it's also called the paradox of plenty. But what it means is that areas with an abundance of natural resources um, become a target for corporations to come in and to set up camp and basically extract this natural resource to their wealth 
and to leave the area just as poor and devastated when they're gone <laughs> as it was before. And, you know, I always tell people, I don't understand people in the local area that want to blame oil and gas workers for the terrible roads and this and that and the other. They always want to blame the oil and gas companies. And don't get me wrong, I am always a person screaming, eat the rich. So it's not like I'm a supporter of these oil and gas companies. But if you follow the information, these oil and gas companies do have to pay a fee for you know using the roads. They have to pay to make sure that these roads are gonna be maintained. And so my biggest question is, Okay, well, if this company, just hypothetically, if this company had to pay $15,000 because of the destruction that their trucks will cause on a road, but then the roads never get repaved, where is that money right. going? Right, like my point so is that whether they're getting rich. Stop yeah. being mad at the oil and well, gas Well, you can companies. still be mad at them. I'm not, I wouldn't go so far as well, to say not be mad at them. But I'm just saying follow like, the money. Right, exactly. They paid the fine or the fee mm-hmm. set by our government, and now the roads aren't paved. So follow where that goes Mm -hmm. and see, you know, where did that money go? I mean, this was set aside for roads and now where is it? Right. And another thing too, like when when you hear a lot of these um, cities talking about the gentrification of their areas, and honestly, the first time I heard that term, I had to go look it up. I didn't know what it meant. But basically, like people with money come into an impoverished area or person places kind of run down, a lot of abandoned buildings, and they, they buy these buildings and they fix them up and they... They create rental units and whatnot, and they, they beautify the, the area. But the problem is a lot of times the, the, the cost of living in those areas then also increases. So whereas the poor people who live there, it's a, it's a pretty desolate area, but their living expenses, like in West Virginia, like rent is probably one of the cheapest places well, in the no, country. I, I would disagree because in our area specifically, we had so many oil and gas workers from out of town. Right, and that's in. where I was going with that. Is right. that the, the, we didn't have gentrification necessarily, but what we had was when the oil and gas workers came in to the state and were making these higher salaries, in the beginning before all the hotels were built, a lot of people who were poor who were paying their rent religiously every month, you know, the landlords were like, well, hey, you know, we could rent to you for like four or 500 a month, or we could charge an oil and gas worker like twelve, fifteen hundred $1,500 a month for the same small place rundown place you're renting and you know it didn't escape the oil and gas workers that they were getting you know gypped like paying ridiculous amounts of rent um they were getting scraped but at the same time like there were people i knew who got kicked out of their homes by people who owned the property because they wanted to make more money off the i mean that's the kind of when it came time for me to have to find a place to live it was cheaper to buy a property with property taxes and homeowners insurance and a mortgage still cheaper to go that route than to rent. I mean, it just made no sense to me to pay $1,200, which at the time that I was looking for a house back in 2015, the average rent was like $1,100 or $1,000 for one possibly two bedroom apartment mm-hmm. i saw some places for rent there it wasn't even a whole house it was one room mm-hmm. in a whole house for mm-hmm. eight hundred dollars for one room yeah and i'm like okay so first of all i'm not gonna pay eight hundred dollars for a room not only that but you can't have pets right you can't have you can't decorate you can't it, have you can't smoke not i mean anything that you want to do you can't have that mm-hmm. and now i pay you know a less price than that 
you know, West Virginia, the only, I think that the biggest thing here is that property values are still low. You know, you look up an average property value to buying a house in West Virginia or in the United States and it's like $250,000. And I'm like, that's insane because, you know, houses around here, you can get a four bedroom house for forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. That's in good condition because we have, you know, low property values here in West Virginia, but the rent prices are outrageous. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for in two years, you could have bought that house for what you paid in rent. So it kind of... Well, but of, not everybody can buy, too, and that's Right, and that's too. the problem, is that younger people who don't have the credit or, you know, the job experience to apply for a loan to buy a house end up getting stuck in this trap right. of renting places that they can barely afford. They have to have several roommates, and while barely paying their rent, can never put any money into savings to buy a house oh what are you talking about you snowflake millennial right, you yeah. can't you can't pay the high cost of your college loans and pay a twelve hundred dollar a month rent yeah, on your minimum wage job it's i mean probably come on they're buying avocado toast that's yes. definitely the answer <laughs> but no i mean seriously we live in a poor area in a red state and it's like no one wants to talk about the fact that you know people can work as hard as they want and they can go to school and try to get a better education but even if you can end up affording the cost of a mortgage with your student loans, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's almost impossible. Yeah. I mean, I know so many people suffering. A lot of people that I know who went to college um, are now moving to places like New York and Boston because at least there, when they're paying high rents, they have better opportunities. Yeah. I mean, West Virginia is in the top five of obesity, of drug addiction, I mean, we, we're like one of the worst states to live in, and yet we want to charge these high rates. And it's like, we, we don't have great colleges. We have a drug problem. We have an obesity problem. We have poverty levels through the roof. And it's like, what makes you think that anyone wants to stay here? Well, I here? think a lot of that, a lot of those problems are, are indicative of like systemic depression that's going on, uh, you know, in our, in our area. It's, it's economic depression and it leads to, you know, every other kind of depression. I think that's the core of it. Well, and unfortunately, too, is that all of these problems lead to depression. And West Virginia also has, not only on top of having a huge drug problem, we're like in top five of uh, prescription pain pill addiction. We have no resources here to battle that. And I know that they're trying to make strides in making the prescription pain pill companies pay for what they've done to our area. But there's still, even in our town, I mean, probably three out of five people you street, see on the street. And that's just a, that's just my own personal opinion. Three out of five people on the All street right. you see have either had a drug addiction or currently have a drug addiction. It's awful. And yet, I don't know of any places in this area within a probably 20-mile radius that have inpatient drug rehabilitation centers. I know of one place that takes inpatient, but they don't take a permanent inpatient, like longer than one or two days. Um, we just had a hospital closed down here. The I was just going to say that. The one hospital that we had for psychiatric patients um, that could place them on a 48-hour hold or whatever the issue was, um, it's closed now. It's gone. Um, so West Virginia, seriously, I mean, we're, we're in the upper part of West Virginia and we, you know, I see in the news all the time that, oh yeah, people talk about Bob Murray and they're like, coal mines are booming, this and that. But then everyone ignores the fact that he just filed bankruptcy 
and hospitals here are closing mm-hmm. and volunteer fire departments are closing down because they, they have no other choice. Mm-hmm. They have no funding. I mean, West Virginia is 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 failing and we feel like if there's sense. a sucking hole <laughs> it's like a black hole that's sucking everything good into it down I the see, drain i see little cities like ours trying really hard to get up to the modern level but i just have absolutely no idea how we can crawl out of the hole when literally every single one of our citizens is either suffering from extreme poverty or a lack of health care or not being able to find a job or getting a job in the coal mine or the steel mill, which are popular around here, but then getting laid off. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, and back to the thing about both parties. So, you know, West Virginia was all, has always been a union state and uh, unions traditionally uh, supported Democratic candidates. And um, of the two parties, I mean, until Bill Clinton came along, he's a whole other story, but. I mean, mostly Democrats, when you look at a Democrat or a Republican, Democrats are more for unions than Republicans. But the reason that I feel West Virginia just kind of like flipped script was because the Democrats, establishment Democrats, have abandoned the working class. They have. and They have totally you know, abandoned the working class. Funny enough, I saw a meme, <laughs> which I know not a great source of information, but it was funny that it said, you know, America in itself has never known a true Democratic Party because the Democratic Party in America is so consumed with money and, you know, being in power that they've never really been for the working class. All the trade deals, the uh, NAFTA and the TPP and all that, um, you know, a lot of the Democrats that voted for that knowing it was going to send jobs out of the country, Bernie voted voted against it. So... um, yeah, we have to get back to, the Democrats have to get back to broad-based working class issues. And, like, I do feel somewhat encouraged by the, the candidates running because, you know, although many of them are copycatting uh, Bernie, it, it's at least they got the message that this is what people want. You know, uh, Cl- Trump came to power through the perfect storm, in my opinion, of... Um, you know, appealing to people in a de- desperate economic situation, uh, making them believe he was going to do something for them, and also because Hillary Clinton was a pretty hateable person. I mean, you had Hillary Clinton exposed as making speeches to Goldman Sachs, um, you know, talking about th- how she's going to do things to favor them over the working class people. I mean, there was just so much corruption and elitism that she just exuded from her from her being that working class people just didn't relate to her at all. And Trump seemed genuine to them in the same way that Bernie seemed genuine to them. Well, and that's why I think a lot of people were on the fence, which, you know, just all the pages that I follow, people were like, how can you possibly be, you know, confused about whether you're going to vote for Bernie or Trump? Because they're on totally opposite ends of the spectrum. But in all honesty, they're not. Well, they are politically. They are politically, but in the same sense that genuinely, I think that Trump and his idea of running was for the American people. But unfortunately, because of his ego, I think he flexes to see whatever he's liked for the most. 
Right. He projects um, back at his audience. Whatever they're cheering on, he right, becomes exactly. that. Exactly. He's like a cult leader. I, I don't think that he's, um, well, I do think he's an idiot, but at the same time, I think he knows how to manipulate people or how to get the reaction from people that he wants. So I think that um, he definitely used uh, his audience's feedback mm-hmm. to construct who he was. Right. And. I don't know. I was never for Hillary Clinton. I didn't want to vote for her. I voted for Bernie in the primaries. I didn't want to see Trump become president. And and even though I am against Trump, I will always admit that even a broken clock is right, you know, twice a day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my brother, who's a pretty on the right side, he's pretty conservative. I mean, I think he's... It's hard to define people who are willing to change their views based on factual information as one side or the other because they kind of swing both ways and that's how I see myself is that people think I'm a you know democrat until they hear my views on no I think people should own guns as much as they want and then I'm not a democrat anymore you know I get attacked from that side or you know I'm with the republicans on guns but then I say you know no gay people have the right to get married and then suddenly I'm a snowflake liberal right 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 I mean I'm I just feel like well, and that's I the problem with top-down politics is because the Democratic Party says you have to be, you know, A, B, C, D, and E to be a Democrat. And the Republican Party says you got to be A, B, C, D, and E to be Republican. And so all those people in the middle are just, I guess we're just orphans. Right. But and I know a lot of people. Two-party system is a nightmare. It is. Because the majority of people are willing to come to a compromise Which is why we need ranked choice voting. But right. In my opinion. A two-party system is a nightmare. Because most people are willing to come to a middle ground. I remember specifically a conversation I had with someone who was a super, super conservative Republican. And they consider me as being absolute liberal Democrat. Which I don't consider myself that. Because there's a lot of things that the liberals bitch about that I'm like, yo, get the fuck over it. You know what I mean? Like, y'all are being crybabies. You know what I mean? So I don't feel like I'm completely on that side. I kind of get insulted when people group me on that side. Because I'm like, nah, I'm with you. Like, they're fucking being little bitches about it you know what I mean like but um I had a a, a conversation with a super republican uh person about abortion because that's the main topic everybody wants to talk about is abortion and I'm like first of all even though I am pro-choice if a candidate came out and said listen I'm gonna give you free health care and we're gonna put a limit on what colleges can charge people but no abortions. I would still vote for them even though I don't agree with the abortion topic because I just feel like healthcare and college are more important to me than that specific thing. And it is, I am very pro-choice. So, I mean, people vote in their self-interest and that's not a wrong thing, but I think the other thing too is that, you know, we've gotten to the point with gun control and abortion where they've realized that they can divide the camps of working class people among those party lines. And look, you know, if whoever becomes the president in 2020, if you've learned anything from the Trump presidency, you've learned that regardless of the promises you make on the campaign trail, we don't live in a Only dictatorship. Only a third of those are going to come true. Right. So Bernie can promise pie in the sky. All the Democratic candidates can promise whatever they want. But we live in a Democratic Republic where people have to get laws passed through Congress, through the Senate. You know, uh, they have to listen to their constituency. You're supposed to listen to their constituency. So, I mean, it's not like the president rolls into office day one and is like, oh, you know, otherwise we would have a wall bill right now paid for by Mexico. Right. So the president doesn't get to just do whatever he wants well, as soon as he comes to office. And here's the thing, too, is that, you know, I've really, really, really tried 
to, to talk to Trump supporters in this area. And I will always agree with Trump on the TPP. I think that that was a bad idea. And I, I do agree to an extent that, you know, the America first controversy, you know, I do, I kind of do believe in that. Like, listen, yeah, we should be forcing corporations to build here and employ people here and not offshore. And maybe we should charge them ridiculous imports if they want to move offshore. And I agree with all that. But he's not and, really talking about that, though. But and that's that's the problem. But and again, with with the immigration thing, I have been to several different countries, and I believe that borders are an important thing. There absolutely should. Well, that be will be that will be a really good discussion for us to have a podcast about because I think borders are for poor people, and I say that because corporations don't have borders. Corporations don't have any allegiance to any country, any nationality, any border. They just go wherever they want, spend their money wherever they want. So poor people are the ones contained by borders and by dividing us along border lines. And I'm not saying sovereignty. Sovereignty is a different issue. But I'm talking about people immigrating from one place to another. What you're saying is that I'm going to want to be able to shop for the cheapest labor. So I have to keep these workers here so that when these workers over here demand more money, I can move my business over here and take well, and exploit these poor workers in this part of the world. Absolutely, and that's a whole different issue. I think that um, I think that if you're gonna sell your problems in America, if you're gonna sell your products in America, you should have to abide by our standards, um, which I know creates a whole economical issue, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about borders specifically. You know, when I traveled to different countries in Europe, um, every place that I went, you know, checks my passport. They hand out, I hand out a, a thing you have to fill out, like a survey, basically, that says, where are you going to be? How long are you going to be there? Very specific so that they can keep an eye on you and check your visa and this and that. I don't think there's necessarily a problem with that. And I think that's fine. I think the problem with our country, especially speaking with Mexico, is that first of all it's expensive and that's wrong because if they're seeking asylum from drug cartels or whatever they're seeking asylum for if they just want to come here to build a better life it shouldn't be so hard and so expensive right first of all and secondly the problem there and and you know trump tweeted the other day about how something about i don't even remember i can't think of it specifically but talking about basically working with the new president to go to war on these drug cartels and immediately liberals and democrats are bashing him and i'm like listen i don't like trump i really don't i think he's an ignorant fucking asshole but i think if america is gonna go to war with anyone maybe helping mexico defeat their drug cartel problem would be a benefit to anyone i mean it's like we have an immigration problem because people are trying to avoid that. And they, I, I absolutely think that those people trying to get asylum here to avoid those drug cartel issues deserve to be away from that shit because that's inhumane. Okay, but let me... Let but me... I also think they should be vetted and come here legally and that's all fine. But I, I don't know. I just think the biggest issue with our problem with immigration in Mexico is, first of all, is not our biggest immigration problem. If you look at statistics, most of our illegal immigrants stay here on visas that expire, right. not I mean, the from whole, Mexico. The whole mythology, there's a whole mythology of immigrants. There's a whole, 
there's a whole propaganda that goes out about immigrants exactly. of how they get here, of why they're but here. But most of them are not from Mexico. They're here legally on visas that expire. Right. And so that should be a problem that's tackled, if that's legitimately what we're worried about. But I think if we want to stop immigration from Mexico, the logical solution is not to build a wall, but to find out why are people trying to come here so desperately? I mean, if America is supposed to be the big brother that helps people, then let's find out what the problem is and try to help them. And people are like, oh, well, the new president in Mexico is just another, you know, member of the cartel to help them. Mm-hmm. So, well, let I me never, just say this. I never agreed with the war in Iraq because obviously everyone knows what sham that was. But if we were like, listen, America is going to go to war with the Mexican drug cartels to make their country a better place so those people can be happy and healthy there and not have to want to escape to America. They can live there happily in their country without drug cartels having control of everything. We're going to go to war with them. I would probably agree with that because I'm just like, I don't know, when Trump made the Trump made the tweet the other day about hopefully the new president is willing to, you know, work with that issue. And all these liberals are on there bashing it. I don't understand what the immediate bashing is about because I, I I don't like Trump. I fucking hate that asshole. But the idea that we should be fighting as America, if we want to solve our immigration problem, is part of it being the drug cartels in Mexico. I think I legitimately think yes, that is a problem because most of them are trying to seek asylum because of the drug cartels. And if we're gonna make a war on it, then we need to go after them. I agree with that. Okay, but here's the here's the biggest problem. When you look at the worldwide narcotics situation, okay, the CIA is funded through dark money, through drug money. And, you know, that's another topic we can get into, but I I just think it amazes me that people don't realize that, you know, we talk about heroin coming through the border from Mexico, but where does the heroin originally come from? I mean, does anybody think it's a coincidence, the fact that we invaded Afghanistan, whose main export is opium poppy? And what do you know? Here we are, uh, what, 17 years, 18 years into the conflict, um, you know, in in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, and Iraq, and um, we got a major heroin problem. You know, in the 80s, uh, when Reagan was in Central America, uh, waging his illegal war down there, Um, behind Congress's back in violation of the Constitution. The big drugs coming in then to the country was crack cocaine. And where do you think that was coming from? So, um, you know, the the CIA and all of these uh, intelligence organizations fund their dark operations through drug money, criminal activity. So, and if people, like I said, we're going to get into some different conspiracy theory things here that people want to call them conspiracy theories or whatever. And um, there actually are a lot of congressional uh, hearings that you can watch. One of my favorite ones is uh, when uh, some crack cocaine, there was a crack cocaine epidemic in California and uh, in Los Angeles, and it was being brought in to the state uh, and the people that were arrested started saying that they were working for the CIA. So it was a big, you know, investigation into it. And there's some really good hearings on there where uh, Maxine Waters uh, really uh, gets out there and just names names and, and, you know, provides all this information about who she talked to in Nicaragua about the drugs that were coming into our country. 
and the the idea that the CIA was behind the operation. And like I said, you know, people can say that these are um, conspiracy theories, but when you actually dig underneath the surface, most of it is based in fact. So um, just to kind of go off of that, I was going to have a segment of our show to kind of talk about uh, some of the things that our government. Oh, now let me just say this: we're not we're not uh, unpatriotic here at Project Ninety Nine. We're we're big patriots, but what we don't like is when our democracy is undermined by criminals. And it doesn't matter where that criminal element resides, they're stealing the concept of democracy that this country was was founded upon. And so uh, don't ever think that because we criticize the government and we're anti-government that we're, that we're you know, against the United States of America. We're against a criminal element in our government right, and exposing that. I think the biggest thing that points out in that is that I, Mick and I both have made efforts to help people in the community. I don't know, I can't even count on one hand how many fundraisers I've done for local agencies. It, I am all about helping my neighbor regardless of what their political view is. And I do personally want to make my state better my city better, my country better. I do. I don't like the argument, well, if you don't like it, just leave. That's an awful argument. We are a democracy, and we amongst ourselves should be able to figure out these problems and make our country better for everyone. Not just, well, let's all just hail down to one person who is elected an elected official and give in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, that's the most unpatriotic thing I've ever heard in my life. You know, I, I take a lot of lessons from what I've learned in history. And a big thing that I have learned was the passing of my uncle has made me think of it a lot. My great uncle, he was a Vietnam War vet. And so many conversations that I've had with him and his views made me realize that even though he was a little bit out of date on the times, he wasn't very politically correct, that he... He had the same ideals that I did. Even though we expressed them in different ways, we did have the same ideals. You know, he may have been a little bit more ignorant on different levels because we grew up in two different time periods and he was in a war and I wasn't. Um, we, we still had a lot of the same basic values. I don't think there was anything in him that didn't believe the same thing that I believed, which is... If a person works hard and wants to be a valuable member of society, that they shouldn't be living in poverty. I mean, it's just the American dream. Anybody who genuinely works hard should be able to buy a house with a little white picket fence. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the American dream. Yeah, like people don't want the sun, moon, and stars. We don't want to have a yacht and a private plane and... You know, it's not like everybody wants to be, uh, when we say the American dream, be rich. I think most people just want a modest life where they can go to a doctor when they need to. You know, we're not asking for the sun, moon, and stars here. But the problem is that, like I said, that capitalism has become a runaway train. And the question now is how to how do progressives build an infrastructure that will address income inequality and, you know, stop the disenfranchisement of people at the voting booth and, uh, you know, for example, in uh, Virginia, where they now uh, just today announced the election results, 
Um, they now have full control. Democrats now have full control over the state uh, and the governorship there. And uh, one of the things they're talking about changing is allowing felons uh, who have served their time to vote. Which I agree with because, honestly, I don't want to defend felons at all because, you know, a lot of felons are, you know, severe drug crimes or sexual crimes or murders, and I get all that. But if we're basing it off the Constitution, it, it's it's unconstitutional to not allow those people to vote. Well, and the other thing, too, is that if you if you served your time, like you're saying about... The, you, the, yeah, you have the, served the it and it's over. The difference of the crimes, okay, if you want to say, well, someone who's a murderer shouldn't be out of jail, okay... So we go with that, but but the point is that when you say a felony, if you're going to say a felony disenfranchises an individual from their right to vote forever, then I think we need to change the rules on what's a felony because if you're a person of color in a state that, you know, um, is possibly teetering Democrat and Republican, you know, and we know that they, they uh, take people off their voter rolls because they claim they're felons and by the time they get it straightened out, they've lost their chance to vote. These are all the dirty tricks that are going on to disenfranchise the masses. And that's the on stuff that we have sides. on both sides. You know, gerrymandering, all, all this BS is the kind of stuff that we as progressives, the issues that we need to seriously uh, make a list and start attacking them big time. Um, so anyways, uh, on to our conspiracy of the week. So um, this is from a document from 19... 19- let me see here. Get my, I'm going to make sure I get it right. Okay, this is from 1969. Um, and this is, uh, you can find this in the National Archives. It's one of my favorite go-to conspiracies, um, especially after the 9-11 attacks, because, you know, people who questioned the official narrative of the 9-11 uh, commission report which was crap, by the way, um, you know, were, of course, labeled as conspiracy theorists, and, you know, they were wackadoos, um, because how could you, especially the people that said that the United States government was involved in it, because to say that, you know, I mean, the 9-11 Commission report acknowledges that the terrorists that uh, we, we claim flew the planes into the buildings were being watched and monitored, uh, so, you know, we know that, that part of it. But um, to say the United States government would be involved in an attack on its own country is just how could you even possibly, you know, possibly think that? So, Which I understand. Again, it's another one of those things where it's like accepting that as reality completely shakes everything that you know. Right, because you don't want to believe that. that there's criminals in charge of the government. I understand that. I get that because... Understanding and accepting that something is completely shaking everything that you know is hard. It and is. And I get that. And I, I feel like the thing that people are divided amongst the most is that sometimes they have to accept these realities that what you know... What you thought you knew. What you thought you knew is wrong. Mm-hmm. And I wish more people could come to terms. I mean, like I said, I grew up thinking Obama was the greatest president on earth and he was so hopeful and so pure and this and that and the older I got I realized that that was all a lie Mm -hmm. but instead of sticking to it and backing him I just accepted that I was wrong 
And then I had to come to terms with the fact that the person that I thought was a hero to me is not. Well, and I think that it's easier in the, in the, in the retrospect. You know, when you're in the moment of something and you're enamored with something, it's really hard to see the flaws in it. So by looking at the past and looking at things that the government has done in the past, you know, the past is the best indicator of future behavior, you know. So, you know, we're not predestined to continue along this, this path. But what I'm saying is that if we look at back at the pattern of the corruption of our government, the history of the things that they've done, then we can maybe change the future because we can acknowledge that our government is based on an ideal, but the people running it are corrupting it. So, um, you know, with the 9-11 Commission uh, report uh, and the idea of the, the government being involved in 9-11, um, when, when I mention that to people and they say that, that it's completely beyond the realm of reality, I often ask them if they've heard about Operation Northwoods, and a lot of people. <laughs> Funny enough, that I had never heard of Operation Northwood, and I was like a super like for my age, very educated person about things like this. And I met this guy who I ended up dating, and now I have been with for seven years, who was in a punk band who wrote a song called Operation, Operation Northwoods. Northwoods. How cool! <laughs> I did not know that, and I was like what's that? <laughs> and he like dropped a truth bomb on me. Yeah. So that was, that's my funny story about Operation Northwood is that as like, as an innocent 17 year old, I was like, what's that? And he's like, I have a whole song written about this. Yeah. Like I'm about to blow your mind. Like, So Operation Northwood, um, Northwoods was Is in... this the conspiracy that you're about to talk about? Is Operation yes. Northwood? Okay. Yes. Okay. Go on. So this is a memo from the Joint Chiefs of Staff on what they call the Cuba Project. Um, it says the Joint Chief of Operations Cuba Project has requested um, that he be furnished the views of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on this matter by March 13, 1962. So what this was is the United States wanted a justification to invade Cuba militarily. Um, the feeling at the time was that the American people would not be in favor of invading Cuba. And so, and also the United Nations, there was a lot of hangups on it. So uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff decided, you know, what we need is an event to make people want to go to war. We need to manufacture consent as uh, Noam Chomsky in his brilliant book, Manufacturing Consent, talks about these types of things where the you know government creates a story that will make you agree that we need to go and kill people which i mean we recognize as americans there's a lot of people who recognize that other countries do this but they're like completely oblivious like they're in denial about the fact that our country would do this to us right and it's like listen how can you recognize that this country would do that to their people but you're in total denial that our country would do it to us right it's nonsense. Right. So, I mean, when you look back at history and you think about what a conspiracy is, a conspiracy is, you know, a plan, a secret plan between, you know, two or more people to enact a plot. Uh, that's pretty much what history is. You know, uh, uh, wars, I don't know anyone who just openly says, well, I'm going to, you know, have a war. That, you know, it's almost always collaboration and secret deals behind the rooms to get things going, especially because... The 99%, again, the poor people, the poor people are the cannon fodder for these wars. Absolutely. We talk about it uh, being in West Virginia. We're the builders 
West Virginia of is one of the biggest contributors of soldiers because we're poor. Because we're poor, because and we're they, poor. you know, when they survey people, they say it's either because they want to get away from a bad family situation or because they want to afford college. Exactly. And it's sad that people are willing to sign their lives up, yeah, just to either get away from the abuse they're dealing with, or to just afford an education. Yeah, that's disgusting. It but is. it see it it feeds into the idea and the the perfect it's the perfect storm Mm -hmm. of well we want to create wars and if we just keep all these people in poverty and misery and abuse Mm -hmm. they'll sign up to fucking die for these they sure will yeah sure absolutely so um i just wanted to go through a couple of the suggestions that were made by the joint chiefs of staff uh as to suggestions of things we might do that would get us uh, the justification we needed in the eyes of the UN, the world, and the American people to go to war. So uh, start rumors, uh, use clandestine radio, uh, land friendly Cubans in uniform over the fence to attack, uh, to stage an attack on a base. Uh, Capture Cuban friendly saboteurs inside the base. So basically they're saying, have these people pretend to attack a military base. There'll be Cubans that we know but we'll pretend like they attacked us and whatever to, you know. Uh, false flag. False flag, yeah. Blow up ammunition inside the base, start fires, burn aircraft on the base, sabotage, lob mortar shells from outside the base into the base, uh, damage some installations, capture assault teams approaching from the sea, capture a militia group which, which storms the base, um, sabotage a ship in a harbor, large fires. Sink a ship near the harbor entrance. Conduct funerals for mock victims. The United States would respond by executing offensive operations to secure water and power supplies, destroying artillery and mortar replacements which threaten the base. Commence large-scale United States military operations. And he says a remember the main incident could be arranged in several forms. Remember the main is when... A ship was attacked, and it was used as an impetus for another war that we conducted um, in the Philippines, I think. We would blow up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame Cuba. Right, and it, it's surprising to me, too, that we know all this stuff as fact and history, yet we refuse to believe that that stuff can go on now. Right. It's insane. We could blow up a drone, unmanned vessel, uh, anywhere in the Cuban waters. We could arrange uh, to cause such an incident in the, in the vicinity of Havana or Santiago, as a spectacular result of Cuban attack from the air or sea or both, the presence of Cuban planes or ships merely investigating the intent of the vessel would be fairly compelling evidence that the ship was taken under attack. So we're going to bomb it near Cuba. And when Cuba sends planes out to go, what the happened here? Then we're going to say we have to attack them because they were trying to attack us again, a second attack. I mean, it's, it's completely crazy. So then um, this is from page... And I'm telling you this because I want people to go look this up themselves. Okay. Uh, An aircraft at, this is page 10. An aircraft at Elgin uh, Air Force Base would be painted and numbered as an exact duplicate of a civilian registered aircraft belonging to a CIA proprietary organization in the Miami area. At a designated time, the duplicate would be substituted for the actual civil aircraft and would be loaded with the selected passengers, all boarded under carefully prepared aliases. The actual registered aircraft would be converted to a drone. Takeoff times of the drone aircraft and the actual aircraft would be scheduled to allow a rendezvous south of Florida. 
From the rendezvous point, the passenger carrying aircraft will be descend to a minimum altitude and go directly to an auxiliary airfield at Elgin Air Force Base, where arrangements will have been made to evacuate the passengers to return the aircraft to its original status. The drone aircraft, meanwhile, will continue to fly uh, the, the flight plan. When over Cuba, the drone will, will be uh, being transmitting to the inter International Distress Frequency Mayday message, stating it is under attack by Cuba. The transmission will be interrupted by destruction of the aircraft, which will be triggered by a radio signal. So, I mean, here we already have like an elaborate plan of bait and switch to make people think that um, that Cuba shot down a plane full of civilians so that we could have justification to attack them when they literally were not doing anything. Um, and people say, well, that's a lot different than actually killing people. Well, if you think that the government has any compunction about killing anybody, JFK, that's all I gotta say. Because um, we still don't know what happened with that. Um, we're still being told lies about it, and we're still fighting for documents to be released. Well, and you know what is crazy about that and relevant to today's day and age is that, you know, when we killed Osama bin Laden, there's no footage released, right? And everybody's talking about this new thing that happened, ISIS leader being killed mm -hmm. or whatever. We know that we have the technology for police to wear body cams, right? Most of our police wear body cams. Not everywhere, but most places. We have the technology. And so I'm wondering, in such an important moment in history, why these, you know, people who caught this guy and killed this guy were not wearing body cams. And if they were, maybe they're not releasing it because they don't want people to know what tactics they use to infiltrate these kinds of people. But it always just seems suspicious to me. It comes back to, like, the World War II, like, Hitler conspiracy. Like... We don't know where Hitler's body is. I mean, maybe they got their cameras. Maybe they had cameras, but they got them from the same place of Jeffrey Epstein's cell. Maybe those cameras, they yeah, all came. Maybe they I'm all saying. came out of the same box. Exactly. And none of them worked. And I don't know why anybody on both sides of the the spectrum are not asking these questions. Where's the footage? Where's the proof? I mean, you I think I mean? everybody's. I think with Epstein, everybody's asking the questions, but it's just everybody knows they're not going to get any answers. Right. Exactly. And that's. I think that's the point as we wrap this up. I want to end on is that we all want answers but I think we can all agree on both sides of the party that we want answers and we're not getting them and that's a problem yep so that's why we're here right and exactly. there is a website just just in closing there's a website called muckrock where you can go and see FOIA requests that have been submitted and uh, there, there have been several FOIA requests submitted for information regarding Jeffrey Epstein uh, everything from the camera footage, if there is any, to emails that were sent back and forth in the prison. I mean, people are trying to get this information. I, I encourage anybody out there to go to that website. You can copy FOIA requests. You can submit your own FOIA request. Um, we got to keep trying to f fight to get this information. Absolutely. It's individual people fighting for information that moves us forward. So that's the message I want to leave on, guys, is that... Um, you know, you may think it's just one individual person that you can't make a difference, but you can. You can. We're just two regular people in a nobody state, you know, trying to make a difference. And if everyone had that opinion that, you know what, you can make a difference if you try, then we would all be a lot stronger as a whole in the 99%. Because our opinion here is that it's us against them. 99% 
versus 1%. So that's what we have to leave on tonight. And uh, we do have a Twitter at Project 99. Is that the Twitter handle there? Yeah, Project 99 Podcast. Okay, so Project 99 Podcast is our Twitter handle. You can follow us there, and uh, any suggestions you want us to talk about, you can message us there. Please give us a follow. Uh, we're going to be available on Anchor and Spotify. Um, but other than that, that's all we have for tonight, and we will see you again next week. And this is Juke signing off. And Mick signing off. See you guys next week. <laughs>